Hi, I'm Kim Vu. Welcome to Vietnola, the show about being Vietnamese in New Orleans. Vietnola is our window into our Vietnamese community in New Orleans and a bridge to Vietnam. We're a member of the family of shows on the podcast network, itsneworleans.com. Xin chào quý vị. Đây là bài Vietnola, chương trình pháp hành về cộng đồng Việt Nam ở New Orleans. Vietnola là một cánh cửa để nhìn vào cộng đồng ở New Orleans và một cảnh nối với quê hương. Vietnola là một số trình diễn trong chương trình pháp hành podcast itsneworleans.com. Today on the show, we'll have a conversation with Leo Chang, a producer, director, camera person, and creator of Emmy-nominated documentary entitled A Village Called Versailles. As a Taiwanese immigrant living in San Jose, Leo was no stranger to the phenomena of Vietnamese diaspora in the United States, having close friends in high school of Vietnamese descent. But it wasn't until Hurricane Katrina was Leo even aware of the existence of a Vietnamese community in New Orleans. His curiosity led him to make the documentary A Village Called Versailles, which was nominated for an Emmy Award. Leo has agreed to come on the show to discuss filmmaking, the filmmaking process in New Orleans, in the New Orleans East community, and his future work. Leo, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you for coming. Thanks for having me, Kim. I've heard about your documentary for a while. It made quite an impact on people both here and, frankly, a lot of Vietnamese Americans all over the country. It sounds like you first learned about the Viet community here when news stories after Katrina spread all over the country. But what what actually sealed the deal in actually getting you to the point of deciding to make a documentary about what was going on here? When I started to hear about uh, the Vietnamese American community in New Orleans after Katrina, um, I... You know, it was the first time that that I was exposed to to the existence of, of the of the community there, and um, you know, so I, I was at first very surprised that there was such a, a vibrant and, and concentrated communities of Vietnamese um, immigrants and refugees um, in New Orleans area, um, and then when I started to hear uh, started to hear what had happened to the communities and how the communities. Uh, was able to come back after uh, the displacement from the hurricane, um, and you know it, it just really resonated with me right away. Um, I think as an an immigrant myself, um, I really relate to the, uh, the 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 themes of of you know sort of seeking uh, for a place to belong to, um, mm-hmm. uh, of, of connection to the land um, and. And sort of exploration of what the idea of home is, and I saw in in this particular story all of those elements, and and just really moved me. You know the the stories that I was hearing out of New Orleans at that time. How old How were old you when you, you left Taiwan? Time. I was fifteen years old. Um, I was a teenager. I came here uh, just in time for for high school. Mm-hmm. Kind of a hard time. I mean, fifteen is a hard time to exist as a human, let alone leave the country <laughs> you grew up in. Well, you know, I, 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 it was difficult, and uh, you know, I didn't really speak English before I moved um, to the San Jose area. So that first, those first couple of years were, were quite, um, quite a shock culturally. Um, but now looking back, I'm, I'm grateful that I moved uh, when I did. That I didn't move earlier, which would have meant that I, I would have not remember as much about. Uh, 
Taiwan, where, where I grew up or where I was born and raised in the first 15 years. Um, and I also was happy that I didn't move later because I think it would have been difficult, more difficult even, um, for me to uh, get adjusted to the American culture. So, uh, so I felt like I, I sort of got, got the right mix of both. Did you, had you made any documentaries about your former uh, homeland before making A Village Called Versailles? Um, I actually have not. Um, funny enough, I tend to be drawn to stories that uh, other people may not consider to be, uh, you know, part of me, part of where I come from, or, or my story, if you will. If you will. I tend to be drawn to uh, stories of uh, from other culture, from other parts of the country of, or of the world, from uh, different from where where I'm living at the time, and um, you know, so yeah, I mean, most of the stories that I've been, I've been drawn to have been uh, really more out of, of fascination on my part of a particular culture and a particular way of life. In some in some sense, though, it sounds like it's the stories that resonate with your own experience that you explore. Maybe is it because of a theme of displacement? Well, for this particular story, I think that it really resonated with me. But I think in general, I really do believe in uh, the universality of a good story. Um, I think that um, regardless of, of the the ethnicity of the people that that are portrayed in the stories that I'm interested in or the experience that they're going through um, might be you know exotic to to some audiences or, or really different or unfamiliar but there is always you know the humanity of it um, within the story that I, I I try to try to explore and try to um, highlight. So the audience, um, again, from all different backgrounds, can really viscerally relate and emotionally connect with the people that are portrayed in the story. And I think that's definitely the case for for Village Called Versailles. I think that you don't have to be a, a Vietnamese American. Um, you don't have to be somebody who had gone through the refugee experience. You don't have to be somebody who has uh, suffered through Hurricane Katrina to really relate you know, to a group of people who really, um, you know, really was fighting for something that they, they love and they believe in and, and they were really passionate about their causes and, and um, you know, they were able to unite the way that we all wish that we could. And, and you know, it was uh, very, very satisfying, I think, for me to, to be a part of that storytelling process. I, I was very impressed at your ability to get some really respected uh, members of the community, both of of a variety of age demographic, um, and 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 you really were you made a very tightly knit community very comfortable to opening up to you. Uh, I I do a little work in my day job with this community, and I'm impressed at your ability to weave seamlessly through um, some of the the work of key players what was your vantage point into the community there there is a hazing you know there is something of a you know sweet version of hazing uh to to get to know people in new orleans east how did you pull that off because it took me a little longer than i think it took you to make the entire documentary so i think i got lucky really um 
you know, I my my entry into the community was through a, a friend of mine who uh, who is a professor at uh, uh, Arizona State University. Um, she had been doing some work studying the recovery and the return and recovery of various communities of color in New Orleans post Katrina, um, and she was also the one that told me uh, first told me about um, the the Vietnamese community in New Orleans East, um, and I had kind of begged her uh, to see <laughs> if I could tag along with her on one of her research trip, and she introduced me to to Father Vien. Mm-hmm. Um, at uh, when she when he was still the pastor um, at Mary Queen of Vietnam, and after um, that, all doors were opened. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, 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 as, as you know, that's how that at least during the time that was kind of the case. And I think I was fortunate in a way that um, you know, even though the community might have been more uh, protective and careful prior to Katrina, um, during that time, I think that there was a sense in New Orleans East that. Um, in order to have uh, their story heard, in order to achieve what they wanted to do with the landfill, they have to um, really open to the outside to be able to tell their stories and share their stories with the outside. So I was there at the right time, and I, I connected up with the right person, which led to um, you know, uh, m- you know, connecting to more community members. Um, I became friends with a bunch of uh, of the young leaders. Um, who were organizing after Katrina. You're, you were definitely very temporal in that. You yeah. captured a moment that I don't think the community had ever gone through uh, and maybe won't again unless there's another disaster striking. Um, the work let's with the land... Is. Yes, let's hope, right? <laughs> the work with the landfill, um, you captured the protests and the political environment then did you did you do most of the footage just after Katrina and then because you released it quite recently like within the past what year and a half or so um, the film was actually uh, first shown at a film festival in 2009 okay and okay it, it ended up on PBS in 2010 <laughs> um, and that's when when we were nominated for an Emmy it was around 2010 okay. um, um, I um, I actually, you know, a lot of the work with the film, especially during post-production, was to find footage that's actually captured by other people. And that's what you see a lot in the film is there's some footage that are mine, but there's also a bunch of footage that I got from um, community members, uh, from um, other filmmakers in the New Orleans area who were happy, you know, everybody was shooting something for that, for those first two years after the storm. Um, I got, uh, footage from, you know, news outlets, both local and national. Um, I got, you know, photos from the church. I mean, I, I, I've got material from everywhere and that's how I was able to piece together, um, the story. You know, I, I didn't necessarily, you know, have, have the talent of being at the right time all the time, but I was able to find the, the, the footage that came from people who were lucky enough, um, to be there to witness the the story unfold. Mm -hmm. Did you have ties to New Orleans before making this documentary? I did not. I only had been to New Orleans once before, um, 
Katrina. Spring and... Break. Was it Spring Break? <laughs> it, um, <laughs> it, it, it was for Mardi Gras. Okay. Sure. So, Bourbon so I Street. It, it's, a, it's, you know, it's, it's the New Orleans version of Spring Break. I yes. suppose. <laughs> for um, three so, weeks. So my, my understanding of New Orleans was quite superficial. And, um, and I'm really, really glad that I was able to, you know, dive in and then and, and for me you know as an outsider i always tell people it, it's such a fascinating place that in some ways the more i know it the less i understand it that, that there's more to know mm-hmm. um you know the the the, the history is so fascinating the dynamics um of different neighborhoods of different groups of people are just super interesting and and you know and funny enough you know it's a city that i spent most of my time in outside of san francisco which is where i live in the past you know, six years or so. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it, it feels like a second home to me in some so, ways. And it sounds like it might end up being a first home because you didn't you didn't leave for later work. You <laughs> right in a bit. I want to hear more from your mouth about your other documentary called Mr. Gao Goes to Washington. But first, I'd like to go to our segment, Vietiquette, where we explore the quirks and charm of culture and etiquette, both here in Vietnamese, New Orleans, and Vietnam. And you pointed out something I didn't even think about. Share it with us. Reveal the Café Soda um, <laughs> secret. Well, well, you know, I, I you know, it, it, because I, I did spend a lot of time with uh, Vietnamese American friends in high school, and, and being in San Jose as a high school student, we went out to eat Vietnamese food all the time, and and some of us would have uh, cafe chudat. And um, I always see these sort of orange can canisters that that the the the, the shop owner or the, the restaurant. Do you want to do you want to explain to our listeners who aren't familiar with cafe chudat what it is? Um, cap- you might be in a better position to explain it, but as far as I know, it's the Vietnamese iced coffee, and it's a drip coffee that's super strong. And you, you add condensed milk to it, and it's very delicious, and it gets you really, really, really caffeinated. <laughs> um, so you know, I, I've seen I've seen these orange cans that that the the, the chefs were, or you know, the the restaurant owners were making this delicious Vietnamese iced coffee from. Um, and it's sort of, you know, I didn't really pay attention. I kind of vaguely remember some logo on it somewhere, and you know. Not until I started spending time in New Orleans and when I visited Cafe Du Monde for the first time, you know, going into uh, uh, they have the the souvenir shop where I see just these same orange cans stacked up. And then I realized that, oh, actually, all the Vietnamese restaurants all around the country, they use the chicory coffee from New Orleans, from (laughs) Cafe Du Monde to make the signature drink of of the Vietnamese Americans. Um, so that was a revelation to me. And I, you know, I, I, I'm actually quite proud that, that I kind of figured that out. My theory is that secretly, most Vietnamese people have a bit of New Orleans in them. You know, it's a, uh, it's like uh, New Orleans cuisine. It's very Creole. Like there's a lot of adoption of other elements from other countries, particularly France, like with the French bread and carrots came from, you know, when there was trade going on. So, you know, I think people just assume it's Vietnamese at this point to see the chicory coffee. I, I would be really curious to see, you know, how that happened. How did that become the, 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 the 
material. Uh, <laughs> the go-to the coffee. Yeah, to, for Cafe Shida. It's fascinating. Actually, you know, it's a little side research project that, that uh, will keep me busy for a couple hours. <laughs> While drinking it. But you, you'll be totally fueled to do it because you'll have one at hand. <laughs> Let's talk about Mr. Gao Goes to Washington. Um, so after I finished A Village Called Versailles, I was actually approached by one of my funders for, uh, for the film, um, uh, which is uh, Center for Asian American Media. Uh, Center, for Asian Center for Asian American Media is a public television funder um, based in San Francisco that supports um, Asian American documentary projects for uh, PBS broadcasts. So they had come to me shortly after A Village Called Versailles had, had gone on television to say that they were interested in having a film done about uh, Ang Joseph Gao, um, the first Vietnamese-American member of Congress who happens to be from the particular community that I had been spending all my time in, in New Orleans. I was already fascinated by, by Gao at that point. You know, as I was finishing a, a village called Versailles in 2008, <laughs> I actually considered including Gao's story as a, a coda to, to the film because it seemed like the perfect um, conclusion, you know, for a film that's about uh, a, a previously disenfranchised community finding um, a political voice. So I started to ask around and, and did my research, and I actually ended up contacting Joseph, and I had a brief conversation with him. Um, and then as I was talking to other people, um, and th this was actually right before you know he ran um, the first time around in, in 2008. So I went, as I was speaking to other Vietnamese Americans and, and just folks in New Orleans who, who knew about the political landscape, people discouraged me from... from pursuing the Joseph story further at that time because they said that there was no way that he was going to win that I was wasting my time. So I... I, I In the first the election advice. or the second? The first election. Uh-huh. So I, I took their advice and I didn't pursue further. And of course, now I regret it because I, you know, it would have been really fascinating to have capture, you know, that historic win when, when he first ran in, in 2008. So, um, so when, when my funder offered me the opportunity to kind of go back into that particular story and to reach out to Joseph again, I jumped at the chance to do it. Um, so I ended up following, um, Congressman Gao for, for almost two years, almost through his entire term. Oh my goodness. Two yeah. years. Yeah, I, I, I began um, a little bit uh, into his term in, what is that, uh, 2010, is it? I'm, I'm getting my, my timeline a little bit confused. Mm -hmm. um, so let's see here. The election, the midterm election was 2010. I think that's right. Um, mm, sorry, I should have figured this out before <laughs> I came up. But um, I, I, I began following him. Um, shortly after he was elected, and I mean, he, he has a compelling story. I think they they did a comparative a statistical analysis, and he, analysis, and he's the only congressperson with like negative income because he and his wife have educational debt that's worth more than their house or something. And <laughs> it was like very, very compelling. And yeah, it, it 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 was just such a fascinating story. You know, him being who he is, and New Orleans being what it is mm -hmm. um and and the 
the the political situation at that time, you know, with the Tea Party mm-hmm. um, rising, with the he was the, a likable Republican. He was a likable Republican, um, and he was a Republican in a town that's sixty five percent African American and seventy five percent Democratic, and that the yes. second largest party in the district was independent. You know, that was all of it was fascinating, you know, that, that he was somebody who is sort of the underdog of all underdogs. And, and, and he was able to um, get elected um, without any prior uh, political experience, really. I mean, this was only his second race. In the first race, he had ran for a state representative office and position. And I think he came in. Uh, fifth out of six or something like that. I mean, I think that people were less surprised after the controversy against his candidate involving, uh, you know, federal investigations. Um, I think his loss was a surprise to everyone in the second term. Um, And he was, in a lot of ways, a likable Republican. He was, I think, the one of the few... Uh, Congress people to vote to support health care, I believe. Yeah, the, he, he was actually the only Republican ever to be on record voting <laughs> for a version of the health care reform, which is now, as we know it, the, you know, the Obamacare. Yeah. The, at least the very first draft of it. I don't know if your parents are anything like mine, but anytime a Vietnamese person is involved in anything, you know, she's very quick to inform me. Well, the only Republican to support health care, Kim, is Vietnamese, you know, so that was like <laughs> the pride of our family is that the only Republican, my mother is a recovering Republican, but <laughs> she doesn't realize she's actually a Democrat and she hasn't voted for a Republican in like six presidents or something. Well, it's interesting to see the generational change that, that you know, the political shift that comes with the generational change in the Vietnamese-American community, for sure. I mean, I think our parents' generation and, and even the generation in between our parents and ours, staunchly Republican, despite having possibly social liberal views, for some reason, it's like they picked the wrong letter or something, you know? <laughs> well- to, to me, the, the Vietnamese Americans have so much in common to, let's say, the Cubans. Yes. The Cuban Americans yes. in, in South Florida, right? Yeah. Came from, escaped from a regime that was a communist and, and is very, you know, um, fearful, right, of, mm-hmm. of, of the, the socialist agenda, if you will. Right. Uh, Anything remotely resembling that is. Yes. 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 So, yeah. And, you know, I mean, Joseph is, you know, he has a. He he's a historical figure in Vietnamese American history at this point. I mean, Absolutely. You know, um, he was a. a it, it was you know again. It was very fortunate for me that that he was willing to, um, you know, let me share his story, and uh, that was definitely a lot of work. You know, he's a busy man. I chased him around all over the country for a little while and got um, to live in New Orleans for two years. <laughs> well, you know, I, I spent a lot of time there. I I, I don't I don't want to you know pretend to be a local when when i you know when i know that, that <laughs> people <laughs> can get touchy about that term yes <laughs> i, I know the town true. well enough uh, but you know i'm not gonna pretend that i actually did live there full time but um but i spent a lot of time that i got to know it really well and and you know and i i, I really kind of learned so much about the the way politics work uh there and and 
it's absolutely fascinating. Or don't work the way they don't work here, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's my personal experience. <laughs> you were you were was your work before these two pieces primarily uh, politically and socially driven? Um, not really. Um, I mean, I would like to think that that in some ways I've always I've always been drawn to stories that have some social relevance. Mm-hmm. Um, but some would argue, though, that um, well, I would argue actually that I'm fundamentally interested in um, you know compelling stories with compelling characters. Um, that that you know I am interested in the Asian American subject matter. I am interested in um, issues around refugees and, and immigrants. Um, but at the same time, I'm just fascinated by a really compelling story. And I think both Joseph's story and also story of the Versailles community are absolutely fascinating and moving and and resonant. Um, so prior to these, I actually made a film about a 94-year-old ukulele player from Hawaii and his unusual friendship with his 28-year-old manager. You know, it's, it's, it's a story about... What is <laughs> about his name? ...and the arts, but it has a lot less to do with any kind of, you know, political issues at all, so... Interesting. But yeah. it sounds like your future work is, is going right back into that. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Somehow I seem to do things in pairs, you know. So I did two films about Vietnamese Americans in New Orleans, and now I'm segueing into doing two films about two very different congressional races. Um, I, I'm making a film about the only LGBT political party in the world, which is in the Philippines, and they have ran a transgender candidate wow. for Congress last year. Um, we've been spending a lot of time, me and my film partner, in the Philippines the last year and um, you know we're in the process of, of editing right now of putting that together goodness to what extent is that is that very difficult mission um, being helped or hurt by the dire state of affairs after the high-end disaster well the, the election actually wrapped up before the the, the typhoon so um, unfortunately they were not successful um, and some of the people that we met had come from some of the provinces that were impacted by the storm so we are definitely you know trying to help as much as we can and 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 you know we're learning um, stories from these friends of ours about you know what's happening to the people that they they know um, so it's heartbreaking and and you know of course there there's you know for for me it it, it brings back the experience of, of of learning about the stories behind Hurricane Katrina so um, it's a little bit unsettling to uh-huh. to have that um, but uh, you know. Um, I think that that's a that's a whole other issue that that we can talk about about the you know the the increase in in the the uh, the natural disaster that's happening all around the world and and what that means for people and and what we can do to to help you know that not from happening or or from you know or help them to come back after such disasters um, struck. I, and I applaud you for having the stomach to be in those kind of very emotionally draining environments. I mean, I came here five years after the storm and you still could see massive, massive fields uh, which were clearly impacted and haven't recovered. 
you you seem to go to these places very soon after the fact and capture on film you know very important stories and i really appreciate that and applaud you for that well thank you i mean i think you know a lot of it is very for very selfish reasons because it's just i love <laughs> i love i love this kind of work and i love you know um being able to take part in in you know getting a, a really compelling story out there well not to you know freak you out but i i have no doubt that you will win an emmy um for one of these pieces eventually <laughs> Uh, you, me. <laughs> you seem you seem to just get better and better at p- being at picking these incredibly intriguing topics and i'm also you know flattered to have you on the show thank you so much for coming thank you so much for having me that's vietnola for today thank you so much for joining us at home at work on your phone wherever you are whatever in whatever you're doing and a special thanks to today's guest leo chang that's all bye now Our show is produced by Kim Vu, Tom Lasher, and Grant Morris. Our technical director is Chris Kehoe. Our theme song was composed by Taylor Smith and performed by the Swamp Lilies. The fabulous audio quality of this show is brought to you in part by PreSonus Audio Electronics. PreSonus makes some of the best audio recording and live sounding products, including Studio One music production software, Studio Live digital mixing consoles, Air Studio monitors, and much more. Visit www.presonus.com for more information. You can follow us on Twitter at It's New Orleans. You can like us on Facebook. We're at It's New Orleans. And you can subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes and Stitcher. You can listen to our other Vietnola shows on our website, itsneworleans.com, as well as our other shows, Happy Hour, Out to Lunch, Mindset, True to the Game, and Midnight Menu Plus One. Keep up with all kinds of fun happenings here at Vietnola by getting on our mailing list. Sign up on our website, itsneworleans.com. Vietnola was recorded today in the lovely city of New Orleans. If you'd like to be a guest on Vietnola, we'd love to have you. Drop us a line. You'll find all the information you need on our website. Vietnola is produced by INO Broadcasting for itsneworleans.com. For everyone here at Vietnola, thanks for joining us today. We look forward to seeing you back here next week for our next episode of Vietnola. Until then, I'm Kim Vu. Bye-bye. Summer's almost over, but at Old Navy, the styles are as hot as ever. Get to Old Navy now for 30% off all jeans, 40% off all dresses, and 50% off all tees. That's right, get 30, 40, and 50% off all your favorite styles for the whole family, plus up to 75% off clearance. Hurry in fast. These deals won't last. The sale ends soon at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid in-store 822 to 828 and online 822 to 824. Excludes in-store clearance, bubbles, active, licensed, and men's package tees.